From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is, wait, wait, don't tell me, the NPR News Quiz. Check out these fireworks. Ooh, ah, Bill. (laughs) I'm Bill Curtis. And here is your host at the Chase Bank Auditorium in Chicago, Peter Sagal. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, everybody. This is the time of year when we celebrate Santa Claus bringing the Declaration of Independence to the happy children of Philadelphia back in the olden times of the 1920s. So while you're putting presents under the independence bush, we thought we'd share some favorite segments from our recent shows. Sometimes actual important people appear on our show, probably because they made the mistake of thinking we're normal NPR. For example, the last year, Christine Lagarde, the manager director of the International Monetary Fund. Peter began with a question of protocol. I should say, to begin with, we, we've never spoken to the head of an important international alliance before, so how, how should you be addressed? Is Director Lagarde, Madame Lagarde, we don't know. Oh, you get, the easiest is that you call me Christine. Most, most people at the IMF call me MD. That stands for Managing Director, and I oh. quite like it because it reminds me of this very nice lady in the James Bond films. But oh, I'm yes. not. I'm not. <laughs> oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Uh, one of the th- first things we're kind of curious about is what you do, and now we assume that you have people killed. Is that. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 of yeah. course not. Yeah. not. That was not a guilty laugh at all. So, I, seriously. <laughs> Could you, I know this is a complicated question, but nonetheless, as I understand it, you spend all day having people call you up and asking you to lend them money. (laughs) Well, in bad times, yes. At the time of the financial crisis, everybody was knocking at the door asking for that. Then it it improved over time. Um, At the moment, it's it's sort of stable. Right. uh, But we're getting a little bit worried because of all sorts of issues like monetary tightening, like financial costs rising and uh, capital flows coming out of the big emerging market economies around the world that are running into troubles. Have I mentioned that we're all humanities majors here? And <laughs> <laughs> Christine, is Paula Poundstone here. Do they pay interest on this loan? Uh, it depends whether you're a rich country or you're a developing country. If you're a developing country, we'll lend you uh, money at 0% interest rate. Uh, because clearly you're, you're in trouble, your per capita GDP is low, and it would be totally abusive and unfair to lend at uh, expensive interest rates. What's the de- definition of, like of between... a rich country or a developing country? Uh, it's defined with reference to the amount of dollar per person and per year. Right. Oh, if you I... are below $4,000 per person and per year, then you're a low-income country. Right. Uh-huh. I just discovered I'm a developing country. Yeah, this you is are. terrible. <laughs> Speaking of polls, we, we researched your background in addition to the, you know, the extraordinary important education and uh, various posts. We discovered that you at one point were a competitive synchronized swimmer. Correct. All right. Really? So how do you feel about men in speedos? <laughs> Well, I'm more interested in actually the issue of shaving or not shaving. Really? I'll tell you something. <laughs> when you're synchronized from it, it's yeah. critically important that you have at least a little bit of hairs on your legs because that is actually a sensor of how high and how vertical you are in the water. So it is, I've never heard anything like this. Me so you're neither. saying 
that synchronized swimmers need to have a little bit of hair in their legs. They can't be completely smooth. Why is that? It's very weird because when you're a synchronized swimmer, if you shave your legs completely, you lose sense of where you are and how. Oh how, my gosh! How so think. it's like you're yeah. Samson. And you're, <laughs> so, so, so what you're telling me is like when you see synchronized swimming, as as you once were, and and these women are in the pool and their legs are straight up in the air, they can only tell that their legs are straight up in the air or wherever they're supposed to be because of the sensory feeling from the hairs on their legs. Exactly right. Perfect. And I, I didn't, wait a minute. This is wonderful because I did not know that I would have anything I could talk to you about. But, uh, I, I wanted to ask if your career, were you a competitive synchronized swimmer? Did you actually go to competitions and... and, and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. yeah. No, I, was on the, I was on the French national team. For you were on the years. French national yeah. synchronized swimming oh, team. Oh, my gosh. Do you use anything that you learned there in deciding who to loan money to? <laughs> if there's somebody who comes from a country that's clearly not going to be good for the money, do the little hairs in your legs kind of tingle? <laughs> well, Christine Lagarde, we are delighted to talk to you. It is a pleasure to uh, get to know you, but we have in fact invited you here to play a game that this time we're calling... Lagarde, meet LaGuardia. So, so we thought we'd ask you about America's greatest mayor, Fiorello LaGuardia of New York City, a man much better than the airport they named after him. <laughs> Answer two out of three questions about the little flower, as he was known, and you will win our prize for one of our listeners, the voice of anyone from our show they choose on their voicemail. Boo. Boo. <laughs> Sorry. Bill, who is Christine Lagarde playing for? Carl Haig of Princeton, New Jersey. Are you ready to play? Yeah. All right, here we go. Your first question. Now, uh, Fiorello LaGuardia was an immensely popular figure in his day. He received what tribute from President Franklin Roosevelt? A, Roosevelt said, he's just five feet tall, but it's all vim. B, upon meeting Winston Churchill, Roosevelt said, quote, he's like an English LaGuardia. Or C, Roosevelt said, quote, the only thing we have to fear is Fiorello LaGuardia. <laughs> I'd say B. You're right. That's what wow. he said. This is the highest praise those all have. Next question. Uh, LaGuardia went on a campaign in New York City against crime and vice. He once declared that the sale and possession of what would be illegal in his town? Was it A, violin cases, B, slingshots, or C, artichokes? What, what was B? I did, B, I was, didn't hear B was slingshots. Okay, I'll say B because I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I just want you to know, now you know how I felt talking to you about international <laughs> finance. <laughs> no, in fact, it was artichokes. Why? It really was. Artichokes, uh, Mayor LaGuardia said the mafia was controlling the artichoke market, and thus he banned their sale until prices came down. All right, now this is exciting. If you get, one, you get this last question correct, you win our prize. And the mayor died in 1947, but his influence lives on. What other important feature of modern life has been credited to Mayor LaGuardia? Was it A, the 10 items or less express lane in the supermarket, <laughs> which he demanded after having to wait in line for 20 minutes to buy a single tomato? B, thong underwear, which strippers in New York invented to get around LaGuardia's anti-nudity laws? Or C, the website BuzzFeed, which was named after the mayor's practice of public feedings of his dog, Buzz. 
I'd say C. You're going to go for C. You're going to say <laughs> that the website BuzzFeed... You know, the crowd is moaning. That means that you have the chance to change your answer. Wow, <laughs> ah, okay. Christine, are, are the hairs on your legs telling you anything about where you might be? All right, B. B. Yes. And the answer is B, yes. Congratulations, everyone. What happened was, as I said, he went on a campaign against Vice in the city. The strippers were told they had to put on underwear to perform, but they wanted to expose as much of themselves as possible, so they invented thong underwear. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That yes. is amazing. And it also it... allowed them to be more sensitive to the environment because of the hair is exposed <laughs> to the hair. <Yeah. laughs> Bill, wow. how did Christine, how did the director of the International Monetary Fund <laughs> do on our show. You know, she did marvelously. Congratulations. <laughs> Two out of three, you're a winner. That's Christine. right. Christine Lagarde is the managing director of the International Monetary Fund. Ms. Lagarde, thank you so much for joining us on What We Don't Tell Me. Absolute honor. Thank you so much. As Ms. Lagarde found out, we're not like the rest of NPR. For example, you could listen all week to Steve Inskeep and never once hear a news story like this. Helen, a new study shows that fish can potentially be what? Delicious. That's true. We knew that. But that's not new scientific knowledge, no, Helen. No, it's not. No, it's not. Mm. We've known that one. Yeah. Um, can I have a hint? Yes. Well, some say the fish bowl is half empty. Depressed? Close enough. Pessimists. Oh. <laughs> what? Well, yes. What, what would you be? <laughs> God. You're right. I mean, if you are a fish, if you're a fish, being a pessimist is just realism. Yeah. Well, in a Things bowl. are not going to work out great for you if you're a fish. Wait, how do they know this? Well, this is what they did. <laughs> They, uh, they took these fish and they, they allowed these fish to mate, but some of the females got to mate with their first choice of male and some did not, right? Oh. Then they took those fish, the fish that had gotten lucky and the fish that couldn't, and they gave them an opportunity to explore places for food. Following along so far? Uh -huh. And it turns out that the fish that didn't get their preferred mate just weren't interested. They were like, what? oh, things don't work out. It's not going to be food. I don't care. <laughs> what? This is true. Wait. And so they just sat there and they journaled. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. Did they start listening to Morrissey and things like yeah, that? Yeah, very yeah. Oh, yeah. Wait, yeah. Wait Worst case is it was Elliot Smith. It was terrible. <laughs> so there's fish that got to hook up with the Brad Pitt of fish. Right. And they were like, we food. And then there were fish that got to hook up with like the busted fish. Right. And they were like, ugh, what's the point? It's, that is exactly the experiment. This is my entire Tinder existence. <laughs> this, is, this explains so much. This sounds sad, but remember, with all the prescription drugs that are now in the water supply, <laughs> these fish are going to feel much better and have no problem getting an erection. <laughs> When we come back, what do you do with a problem like Scunthorpe? And the greatest anchor ever meets the other greatest anchor ever. So many anchors will never move again. We'll be back in a minute with more of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. 
Support for this podcast and the following message comes from The Economist, a weekly magazine offering insight and opinion on international and U.S. news, as well as economics, politics, business, finance, science, and technology. There's something for everyone in The Economist, like the recent article, The Promise and Problems of Cities, where an archaeologist explores the enduring appeal of urban life. The Economist is offering listeners a free print copy. For your free print copy, just text WAIT, W-A-I-T, to 99000. No matter what you've got planned, you need a song of the summer. This week on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we are rounding up experts from NPR Music. We will play a ton of songs to lift your spirits, and you might even find your next favorite artist. That's NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Listen and subscribe now. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host at the Chase Bank Auditorium in Chicago. Peter Sagal. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, everybody. This week, we are celebrating our nation's birth, which Bill will now reenact. Push, George Washington. It's time to push. While we wait for baby America to crown, let's keep listening back to our favorite segments from the last year. This is a Bluff the Listener game we played last September. Hi, this is Megan Lospect, and I live in Missoula, Montana. I love Ooh. Missoula, Montana, one of my favorite places. What do you do there? Well, I work at a local TV station full-time, and I work at Animal Wonders, which is local exotic animal rescue and outreach. Oh, no, wait a minute. Exotic animals. That's yeah. not, not dogs and cats, but things like... Well, we, ha- we just rescued a baby beaver last summer. Who are you rescuing them from? <laughs> well, so the... <laughs> Abusive beaver parents. <laughs> <laughs> so this baby beaver had a severe disability, and so oh. um, he gets to live the rest of his life and <laughs> the, with the rest of us. Um, at Does he have a, a list? Uh, (laughs) That would be so funny. Well, anyway, welcome to the show, Megan. You're going to play the game in which you have to tell truth from fiction. Bill, what is Megan's topic? The Scunthorpe problem. The Scunthorpe problem. It sounds like a terrible Robert Ludlum novel, and it might be. We haven't checked. But it's also a real term for something we saw written about in the news this week. Our panelists are going to tell you about it. Pick the one who's telling the truth, and you win our prize. The voice of your choice on your voicemail. Are you ready to play? Absolutely. All right. First, let's hear about the Scunthorpe problem from Helen Hong. It's a struggle that many public radio fans know all too well. After years of listening to their favorite radio personalities, they finally get tickets to see them in person and show up excitedly at the venue only to experience the shock of their lives. That's what they look like? (laughs) Fresh Air host Terry Gross reports her most commonly heard feedback at live events is, but you're supposed to have long flowing hair. It happens so often that NPR has given it a name, the Scunthorpe problem. Named after Eliza Scunthorpe, a longtime contributing member of WBUR in Boston, Miss Scunthorpe at last scored tickets to see her favorite radio show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I guess I always imagined them to be, you know, 
really distinguished looking? (laughs) Miss Scunthorpe's unsettling experience came to a head when the host of the show, Peter Sagal, was announced. Leaping to her feet in dismay, Miss Scunthorpe repeatedly yelled, Boo! No! I don't believe you're him! Bring out the real Peter Sagal! Unable to be appeased, Miss Scunthorpe was escorted out of the show and off the premises. Well, you can bet I'm canceling my membership. There's no way that imposter was Peter Sagal. The Peter Sagal I know and love looks like Pierce Brosnan and Goldeneye. (laughs) (laughs) The Scunthorpe problem is people believing that public radio figures are more attractive than we really are and being shocked to find out the truth. Your next Scunthorpe explanation comes from Adam Burke. With so much intentional obscenity on the internet, it seems that unintentional obscenity is also becoming a problem. Take the case of sports writer Natalie Weiner, who tried to log on to a website only to have the site's security protocols reject her name as offensive language. (laughs) It's part of what web developers refer to as the Scunthorpe problem, so-called because when certain AIs and internet monitoring algorithms are confronted by a name like that of the English industrial town Scunthorpe, they often flag it as objectionable as it happens to contain within it a particular four-letter word that many find (laughs) offensive. Quick hint, the word isn't Thor. (laughs) As researcher Michael Veal puts it, some words, such as the common abbreviation of the name Richard, are harmless in certain contexts, but in other cases, parents might not want them used and would be flagged by certain types of program. It seems that after so many years of being plagued by dirty-minded 11-year-old boys, the internet has turned into one. (laughs) Who can't or won't distinguish whether Charity Buttkiss is a woman's name or just a very particular request on GoFundMe. (laughs) The Scunthorpe problem. (laughs) A problem in computers trying to teach computers when a naughty word is not really a naughty word. And your last description of the Scunthorpe problem comes from Maeve Higgins. The Scunthorpe problem, if you're not familiar, is a term in biology for the tendency of human beings to react to the discovery of a new species by immediately trying to eat it. (laughs) It gets its name from an 1856 incident when a scientist named Dr. Thomas Scunthorpe proudly presented the discovery of the platypus at a conference. He described it thusly. Tis the body of a weasel, the head of a duck, and the teats of a woman goat. The first question from the audience was, incredible discovery, sir. What side dishes do you recommend? (laughs) Weeks later, Dr. Scunthorpe ultimately released his findings in a paper called The Platypus, Please Don't Eat It. He was ignored. Platypus populations plummeted, and the Scunthorpe problem was born. All right. There is something real called the Scunthorpe problem. But is it, from Helen, the problem of people being inevitably disappointed (laughs) when they find out what their favorite public radio personalities actually look like? Is it, from Adam Burke, the problem of people or words with names that could be dirty not being able to use computers because the computers won't let them? Or is it, from Maeve Higgins, the problem of people immediately celebrating the discovery of any new species by immediately trying to eat it? Which of these is the real Scunthorpe problem? Well, it's really funny because um, recently I looked up 
a picture of what you look like, Peter, and I was very shocked to find out what you look like. <laughs> <laughs> You 100% could have replaced the word shocked with pleasantly surprised. <laughs> I wanted Helen's story to be correct, but I, I'm pretty sure it's Adam's story. You're pretty sure it's Adam's story that Scunthor problem ref refers to a problem in computer programming? Correct. All right. Well, you've chosen Adam's story then. And to bring you the real definition of the Scunthor problem, we spoke to somebody who knows all about it. My last name, Weiner, triggered an algorithm that was designed to prevent people from using pornographic content or something. That was Natalie Weiner, a staff writer at SB Nation and victim of the real Scunthorpe problem <laughs> because she can't enter her name into computers. Congratulations, Megan. You were right. Adam Burke was telling the truth. You picked it. He gets a point. You win our prize. Any voice you like, saying pretty much anything you want. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you You're so much. You're very, very welcome. Can I ask before you go? <laughs> what did you imagine I looked like? Can you can you read that description of a platypus again? <laughs> Yeah, that description sounds pretty good. All right. <laughs> Everybody oh. jumps on you. All right, thank you, Megan. Thanks so much for playing. Thank you so much. Earlier this year, we went to San Antonio, Texas, where we were lucky to interview one of the greatest TV anchormen ever. Well, one of the other greatest TV anchormen ever. My old friend Dan Rather joined us on stage, and Peter began in the appropriate way, comparing him to me. <laughs> you started, and it turns out that many reporters, I know including Bill, started this way. You were a local guy. You, at one, you were doing minor league baseball games at one point? I did. I, I did play by play football, baseball, basketball. Track, track is really difficult to do, play by play. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Wait a minute. How, how would you do that? Well, he's running. <laughs> he seems to be running more. <laughs> or he's vaulting, or he has this shot put in his hand, and he takes five steps, and he throws. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you think there's one moment that in which you sort of got your start that started your, the career that we've all sort of been watching low these many decades? Well, I do. Uh, that there was a great hurricane in 1961, Hurricane Carla, which uh, was at that time, and I think still the largest in terms of sheer size, hurricane on record in the Gulf of Mexico. And I had just started in television. I had made my move from radio into television. I was still new to television. And we wound up in the right place at the right time on Galveston Island as the hurricane came in. And that was picked up by other stations. Nobody else was there broadcasting. So if I had to point to one moment that sort of, quote, made my career, that was probably it. Yeah. It's funny because Bill got his sort of start with a great uh, tornado in Kansas. Tornado, so it, same thing. It turns out maybe these, maybe these weather events are being caused by ambitious young reporters. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you were known and for many things, but certainly for being fearless, not, in the, not only the places you went, like war zones, but also the way you treated people in power. There was a famous incident where you got up and you asked uh, President Nixon a, a question. It was during Watergate, and he didn't like it. And I believe he said, are you running for something? And your famous response was, no, sir, Mr. President, are you? <laughs> That's pretty good. 
You, of course, took over as the anchor of the CBS Evening News, taking the baton from Walter Cronkite, another legend who, I guess, took it from Edward R. Murrow. So um, you were part of that line. And one of the things that people were noticing as you, as you settled into that role was you were looking for your sign-off. Because famously, of course, Cronkite would end his broadcast, well, that's the way it is on this right. day. And, and what was your thinking? You said, I needed something different. You needed something for yourself. Well, it was suggested to me that you need a sign-off. Yeah. But, you know, it, following a legend like that is not the easiest thing in the world. At any rate, my first suggestion was maybe I could say, well, that's some of the way it is. Yeah, okay. That's not bad. <laughs> uh, nobody took to that idea. We tried two or three things. But at any rate. That's uh, the way it might be. <laughs> doesn't have quite the same No, rate. not at all. Uh, but at any rate, uh, I was thinking, you know, my father's, my late father's favorite word was courage for a lot of reasons. So I thought, well, maybe we could just pause and say, you know, uh, and that's the CBS Evening News, Dan Rather reporting, courage. And the more I thought about it, the more I kind of liked it because sure. it, it had a nostalgic ring for me. I will say that the executives in the company were horrified with this whole thing. <laughs> really? <laughs> Uh, so it lasted about a week. <laughs> and at the end of that week, it was pretty much, re you either stop using this as a sign-off, or we stop using you. Wow. So it was an easy decision. I understand. Know. And what did you change to? I just decided not to have one. Yeah. Just went with the plain good I'd given it my best shot. Didn't yeah. work. So yeah, there you go. I know. Hey, uh, out of all the people you've interviewed, and you interviewed just about every you know, major historical player in the last 50 years, was there a particular favorite, somebody who you were glad to talk to? Well, I'm glad you put the preface because, let's face it, I've been lucky and mightily blessed. I could give you the names of maybe seven people, but if I had to pick one, it would be Dr. Martin Luther King and what was then the emerging civil rights movement. Yeah. Um, covering, Dr. King, covering Dr. King changed me as a professional, and it changed me as a person. And for that reason, I would say if I had to pick one, I would say interviewing Dr. Martin Luther King and covering him day to day for almost two years. Wow, sure. I imagine that's, I'm envious that you had the chance. Do you ever, when you're watching whomever, do you ever like miss it? Do you ever like, if I was there, I would have the questions. Like every second. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Well, Dan Rather, it is an absolute honor to talk to you, but today we have, in fact, asked you here to play a game we're calling... This game is tougher than the hide of an armadillo in the hot sun that forgot its sunblock. As I'm sure you know, you are famous for what people call ratherisms, uh, folksy sayings with colorful metaphors and colorful wisdom. You've used so many of them over your career. We want to see if you can pick the one you actually came up with. <laughs> from some fake ones that we made up in tribute to you. So if you can do that two times out of three, you'll win a prize for one of our <laughs> listeners. Bill, who is Dan Rather playing for? Corey Henderstein of Washington, D.C. All right. Here's your first Ratherism. This was when you were covering the 2000 election. And did you say, A, this race is tight like a too small bathing suit and a too long ride home from the beach. <laughs> B, Papa, wear your good suit, because we got ourselves a tie. <laughs> or C, this race is tighter than Aunt Tilly after a third Moscow mule. Definitely A. It was definitely A. 
I've always wondered, before, did you just make those up off the top of your head or did you like have them ready to go? Well, in the beginning, they came from working in the oil fields when I was a kid. This is the way men talk to one another. You have got to be kidding me. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, you, you can only say it's, it's hot as hell so many times. Yeah, I guess so, so yeah. So, <laughs> as the day wears on, you say, you know, it's hotter than a Laredo parking lot. Or oh, yeah. some, some way to use colorful language. All right, we have two more. You did well with that one. This is now, we're moving through time to the election of 2004. That was George W. Bush re-elect versus John Kerry. During that evening's coverage on CBS, did you say, A, John Kerry's wife might own Heinz, but this is one night he won't catch up. <laughs> B, we used to say if a frog had side pockets, he'd carry a handgun. Or C, it all comes down to O-H-I-O, which stands for Ohi, it's over. <laughs> Definitely be. Yes, a frog had side pockets, he'd carry a handgun. I think you're doing really well. Here's your, here's your last question. This is a great metaphor you used while commenting on the 2016 election. Was it A, this race is a backcountry tilt-a-whirl, it could go either way. B, like the talking horse said to the hopping bull, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Or C, if Clinton wins Florida, this race will go faster than a Hamilton ticket at face value. I don't recall saying any of that. Really? <laughs> Do you know wh which one you wish you had said? I guess that would be B. You'd be B, like the talking horse said to the hopping bull. That is a good one, but the one that we were told you said... If Clinton wins Florida, this race will go faster than a Hamilton ticket at face value, which I thought was great because you're updating your cultural references. <laughs> but meanwhile, Bill, how did your old friend Dan do in our quiz? Well, he had won anyway. Two out of three is a big win for us. <laughs> Good going. Dan Rather is a legend of broadcast news and the creator of News and Guts Media. Dan Rather, thank you. Thank for you. Being with us. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Dan Rather, everyone. When we come back, our panel opines and Seth Meyers reclines in an armchair at Carnegie Hall. That's in a minute on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me from NPR. Support for Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and the following message comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team of mortgage experts make the home buying process smoother for you. With a history of industry-leading online lending technology, Rocket Mortgage is changing the game. Visit rocketmortgage.com slash wait, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, mnlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. What if video games could help you and your child bond and learn important skills? NPR's Life Kit for Parenting is taking on screen time. One of the big things we're working on right now is the concept of resiliency and not quitting when something is hard. Sometimes we lose and lose and lose. And games are great with that. Check out Life Kit's new guide on screen time or subscribe to Life Kit All Guides for all of our episodes all in one place. From NPR and WBEZ Chicago, this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the NPR News Quiz. I'm Bill Curtis, and here is your host at the Chase Bank Auditorium in Chicago, Peter Sagal. Thank you, Bill. Thanks, everybody. 
So, on other shows on NPR, they bring you the news, supposedly. But the important stuff isn't what our elected leaders are doing. No, the real work of ruining everything is done by everyday people, like you and me. Here's our panel talking about the quiet heroes who are making this country a living hell. Alonzo, the Department of Homeland Security, is looking for creative ways to fund the border wall. They're saying they can raise up to $3 million just by collecting what? Um, water bottles going into the airport? Huh? You were very close, actually, because it is something that people leave at TSA. Not water bottles, but something else. Oh, they're phones. No. No. <laughs> something else. Something else that's metal in their pockets. People out there saying keys, but it's not going to be you. Yes, they take your keys. Oh, your they spare go and, change? Your change, ah. yes, that's exactly right. So the administration will be protecting the border the same way that lousy roommate you had did his laundry by stealing your quarters. <laughs> Emails obtained from the Department of Homeland Security outlined their plan to raise $3 million, or 300 million cents, in funds for the border from change people leave when they walk away from the TSA security line. All they need is Bill Gates to fly commercial once. <laughs> and you'll be able to build the whole wall. I don't like that the money's going towards the wall, but I'm all for people taking all of my change all of the time. Really? It's 2000, I'm, I'm able to buy things on my phone with it just looking at my face. Yes. And yet I've got tons of metal in my pockets, like, please, can I get into your state? Will you take these at the toll booth? My tuppence. The, uh, yeah, my tuppence. Well, Enough with the big metal stuff. It's all grimy. It's filled with germs. Come to my house. Take all of it. Well, that's actually that's actually Plan B. If they don't get enough, <laughs> they're going to try that. They're also going to try a new pat down technique, turning you upside down and shaking you. <laughs> Faith, cities like New York, L.A., and Washington D.C. are trying out new laws that would allow ordinary citizens to do what? Um, uh, give me a hint, please. I'll give you a hint. Uh, finally, you can fulfill your childhood dream of being a meter maid. Giving people your child... What? So they're trying out people giving each other tickets? Yes, they're what? allowing civilians to hand out parking tickets. Well, that's just a terrible idea. That's where we are, Faith. This will be known as the era of terrible ideas. Oh, oh thank God! No, you don't get. You don't have to get just frustrated at the jerk who parks in the bike lane. You can be the jerk who tattles on them to the cops. More and more cities are turning to citizen volunteers to report their neighbors' behavior. You know, after a couple of years of the United States seeming like Nazi Germany, it's so refreshing now to have it just seem like East Germany. Wow! So the programs vary in New York City, where you live. So watch out, Faith. Anybody who uses an app to report illegally idling vehicles can receive 25% of any collected fines. It's a bounty system. One man has made $9,000 so far. That's almost one month's rent. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Just parking? Yeah, where, what else can we kinds, report? Uh, it's various kinds of parking. What else do you want to report? Oh. <laughs> Where do we start? I, this isn't funny. It just gets me all fired up. I want to report my neighbors upstairs. I live in an apartment building, and their children are feral and up too late. 
<laughs> See, this and is $9, why. And $9,000 just about covers my rent, <laughs> so I'm imagine. doing it. This is why New York's such a great city to test the system. <laughs> exactly. In. You yeah. see how quickly because I went to the dark New Yorkers, side? New Yorkers already get along so well. Exactly. <laughs> Start out with a nice fine, but like those guys that walk uh, down the street out in public with flip-flop shoes. Yeah. Those guys with their big man feet hanging over the edge. Fine. You get a fine. You know yeah. what that's uh, called when um, your feet hang over? It's called toverbite. Oh, yeah, two hundred dollars of violation. Yeah, and if you wear a uh, sleeveless shirt and you uh, have man boobs that stick out of the sides, where the uh, arms should be, three hundred dollars. Alonzo, it's almost summer camp season, and you'll be happy to know that there are now summer camps you can send your children as young as four to, where they will learn all about what. Uh, wow, that, that's a pretty broad statement. Um, can you give me a hint? What, sure, what? It's a, it, this is actually the reason why these camps are popping up. It's important to keep the young people from being seduced by socialists like Bernie Sanders. Oh, so that they can learn all about what uh, the Bible and conservatism? No, and, not exactly. Mm. Not, it's not about religion, it's specifically to counter the socialist propaganda. Oh, about capitalism? Yes, they're capitalism camps. Whoa. Kids say sharing is caring, but you know what? Caring's not for closers. <laughs> if your kid doesn't understand how capitalism works, you can send them to a camp like the one run by a company called Biznovator in South Florida. Their kids will, quote, learn how to monetize their hobbies, interview local corporate executives, and shoot YouTube commercials for their prospective businesses, unquote. Uh. You know your little camper has mastered the principles of the free market when he says to its counselor, how much do I have to pay to go home? <laughs> it brings yeah. a new meaning to a kid at camp saying, I want some mores. Right? That's true. That's then true. Some they other kid is like, more well, more I, some what? other kid has, well, I'm making s'mores and they'll be five dollars each. That's right. <laughs> and That's right. he's controlling the market on s'mores. So yeah, next thing you that. know, he's a monopoly. Then he's paying off the counselor to make sure that no one else is allowed to make s'mores and he's basically understood the American system. <laughs> I thought these kids would learn how capitalism works when their rich parents pay to get them into college. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capital One. With a Capital One Saver card, you can earn 4% cash back on dining and entertainment. That means 4% on checking out the new French restaurant or 4% on bowling with your friends. You'll also earn 2% cash back at grocery stores and 1% on all other purchases. Now when you go out, you cash in. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Terms apply. Support for NPR comes from Newman's Own Foundation, working to nourish the common good by donating all profits from Newman's Own food products to charitable organizations that seek to make the world a better place. More information is available at newmansownfoundation.org. One thing you might know about those of us who work in the satirical industrial complex is that we all hang out together all the time. And we only do it in the most fancy places like Carnegie Hall. 
Last winter, we allowed an audience to listen in as we chatted with our late-night colleague, Seth Myers. Peter may not have been sure who he was, though. So we understand you have a television show of some kind. I do. It's on very late at night. Yeah. So we tape at 6.30, and I am never awake when really? it airs. Really? <laughs> nope. I have no idea what I would do if someone said, okay, you're going to be starring in an in a evening show four nights a week. And was that intimidating when you got that job? It was, but... Saturday Night Live was so intimidating when I got that job sure. that I was prepared f to be intimidated again. If you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And so when, when you said to yourself, okay, we're going to have our own, our own iteration of Late Night. Yeah. You said, I want to do what? I didn't know. Really? <laughs> when I first started doing the show, your biggest fear was how do you fill an hour? And that is not my fear no, anymore. No, no. <laughs> It's been replaced with bigger fears. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> More existential ones. Yeah. Now, I was not joking. We are very proud that you came out of Northwestern College and then you were at I.O., yes. out of the great Chicago improv tradition. Yeah, I was very lucky to go to a school that uh, considered improv a profession. Right. You know, my parents did deserve some of the blame. When they, when they took me to Chicago, and again, we grew up in New Hampshire, but my parents also went to Northwestern, and when they took me there for my first week of school, they took me to Second City because it was something they had done in college. And so, yeah, there we go, Second City. And so... Which was a grave mistake, because yeah. that was so much more interesting than any of my freshman year classes. Yes, yeah. damn it. But then I was very lucky. Uh, there was a theater called Boom Chicago that's based in Amsterdam right. in the Netherlands. And so I auditioned for that and moved overseas for a couple of years. So you're doing improv in Amsterdam for Dutch people? Yeah. How did that go? There were nights. It was not great. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I have a love affair with the Dutch, so this will sound like a criticism, but it's a loving one. They are the most honest people in the world. Okay. I remember after a show, a Dutch guy came over and said, hey, I'd like to buy you a drink. And I said, oh, did you like the show? And he said, no. <laughs> and I said, why are you buying me a drink? He goes, I did not like your comedy, but that doesn't mean I might not like you. <laughs> Optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> Were, were, were the Dutch, were they a serious people? Were they hard to make laugh? They would only laugh if it was genuinely funny. And so I do think, looking back, when you spend two years somewhere where polite laughter doesn't exist, it makes you a better comedian. Right. Yeah. Because they put you through it. You never think you were good when you weren't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I should point out that, of course, 80% of our audience was Dutch, and the other 20% were Americans who were visiting Amsterdam. And, of course, they weren't there because improv was legal. Right. <laughs> did, that, did that help or hurt? It, you know, people say, oh, my God, a stoned audience must be the best audience. They are the worst audience. Oh, yeah. Because they laugh at the hat you're wearing. <laughs> you have a perfectly crafted joke, and they're already laughing. Because of how you walked on stage. <laughs> Has President Trump noticed you? You know, we have a little bit of history, but, you know, uh, recently, Michelle Wolf, who, who was a colleague of mine, yes. she worked at our show, and, and after her correspondence dinner, he tweeted that she bombed as badly as I did during my correspondence <laughs> dinner, and yeah. that was, I was thrilled to be compared to her was... She, no, well, first of all, I thought she was pretty great. She was fearless, but you were especially fearless. This is the famous 2011 White House correspondence dinner. Yeah. Where you chose to make fun of a certain person in the audience. Yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah private citizen at the time. I know. Yeah. 
and you, you completely mocked the whole idea of him, him uh, becoming president. And some people say, of course, that that's when he said, I'll show them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, color me shown. <laughs> you, you're, like, you're like the Mrs. O'Leary's cow of the National Conflagration. Yeah. <laughs> the only difference is... Even Mrs. O'Leary's cow that night didn't walk out of there going, I crushed it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Seth Myers, it is such an honor to talk to you. We have invited you here to play a game we're calling Late Night Meet Date Night. So, you host Late Night quite famously and quite successfully. We're going to ask you three questions about date nights. Answer, okay. two, answer two to three questions correctly, and you'll win our prize for one of our listeners. Bill, who is Seth Meyers playing for? Rachel Barish of New York, New York. All right. Okay. Dating has changed significantly over the centuries. If you were, for example, a Welshman looking for a date in the 17th century, what could you do to ensure you might catch her eye? A, walk loudly past her as passion was considered to be proportional to the volume of footsteps. <laughs> B, give your crush a homemade spoon carved with specific symbols indicating the nature of your love. Or C, travel as far away as you can and send a letter as love was proved by the distance it had to travel. All really good, feasible options. Yeah. <laughs> so one of these was the 17th century Welsh equivalent of swiping right. I like the idea. Of loudly walking past, I'm going with A. You're going to go like you stomped yeah. past, and that my passion for you is so great that I must stomp. I've met a couple of Welsh people, and I've always heard them coming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry, it was the spoon. Whittle her a spoon. Presumably this means I want to spoon with you. All right, you still have two more chances. Your next question. Scientists are nerds, but they look for love too, as in which of these real-life cases? Which, which of these really happened? A, a researcher in Antarctica turned on Tinder and matched with someone in Antarctica a few miles away. <laughs> B, a clinical technician was really impressed with the quality of a particular blood sample and looked up the patient to ask her out. Or C, a medical researcher who managed to impress his crush with comic dioramas made with euthanized lab mice. I'm gonna go. I'm going to say Tinder in Antarctica. You're right. It worked. <laughs> this researcher who's down his station down there and says, oh, I wonder, I wonder I'll just turn on Tinder. I guess the nights get long. <laughs> and he actually found somebody who was camping just a short while away. They did meet, but nothing happened. The scientist has said the first Antarctic Tinder hookup has yet to happen. So last question. If you get this one all right, you win, right. Seth. Here we go. Celebrities have their own dating troubles. I'm sure you know that. Actress Zoe Kravitz once went on a date, which she says went pretty well. He was nice, they got along. But then what happened? Was it A, at the end of the date, he said, that was fun, but I got to confess I only came because I thought I had a date with Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> B, she pulled out her phone when she got home and saw that he had live tweeted the whole thing. Or C, the next day, the guy called her and asked her if she wouldn't mind looking after his, quote, pet turtle, unquote. And she said yes, because he was a nice guy and who doesn't like turtles? And it turned out to be a 30-pound African tortoise named Gary, 
who stayed with her a month while this guy totally disappeared until he came back and said, hey, want to catch a movie? And they went to the movie and he never mentioned the turtle, <laughs> which she ended up giving to a turtle rescue. Wow. I want, I want it not to be seen because, <laughs> no, only because it's such a wonderful piece of writing. No, I, no. Want, I want that to be fiction and then I tip my cap to whoever came up with it. And because of that desire, I'm going to say it was B, that it was live streamed. No, that's not what it was, but I'm going to say that was a hint and not a... I'm, I'm going I'm to give you another chance. It was C. It was C. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, how did Seth Meyers do in our quiz? Seth did great. Two out of three. <laughs> a champion. Seth Meyers is the host of Late Night with Seth Meyers. If, like me, you can't stay up that late, it's often on the internet the next morning. Seth Meyers, thank you so much for joining us on Wait, Wait, Don't Seth Meyers, everybody. That's all for our 4th of July special. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, assuming anything interesting happens. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is a production of NPR and WBEZ Chicago in association with Urgent Haircut Productions, Doug Berman, Benevolent Overlord. Philip Gotika writes our limericks. Our public address announcer is Paul Friedman. Our house manager is Tyler Green, assisted by Simon Tran. Our interns are Lila Francis and Panina Beattie. Our web guru is Beth Novi. B.J. Lederman composed our theme. Our program is produced by Jennifer Mills, Miles Dornboss, and Lillian King. Our motivational speaker is Peter Gwynn, who reminds us winning isn't everything. Technical direction is from Lorna White. Her business and ops manager is Colin Miller. Our production coordinator is Robert Newhouse. Our senior producer is Ian Chillog. And the executive producer of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is Michael Danforth. Thanks to Bill Curtis. Thanks to all of our panelists that you might have heard. Thanks to all of our special guests. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Peter Sagal, and we will see you next week. This is NPR.